The Peter Schiff Show. We had solid gains today in the major stock market averages. The Dow Jones uh, putting in the largest percentage gain, just over 1.2%, just under 300 points, 298. I think at the highs, the Dow was up maybe 370 and change. So a strong day. S&P, NASDAQ also up, not quite as large as a percentage move. You know, the Russell 2000, not up as much as the Dow, but it's at a record high again today. You know, I think that it's the Russell 2000 that ultimately could make the biggest percentage drop once stock market traders start to figure out what's actually going to happen. But in the meantime, today they were celebrating the ceasefire in the trade war. Although I don't think I should call it a ceasefire because nobody actually fired a shot. And it's been more of a war of words than a real conventional uh, battle. I mean, basically a lot of saber rattling, not a lot of fencing. But I think what happened today is, you know, we call the truce, right? Both sides uh, sheathed their sabers and agreed that there's not going to be a war, right? And I think the markets were relieved. And so we got a relief rally based on that good news, although I don't think the markets ever sufficiently priced in the real cost of a, of a hot trade war, right? I know Donald Trump said, oh, trade wars are easy to win. Believe me, if, if they were easy to win, we would have waged one. Uh, they're not easy to win. I don't think the markets really discounted how bad it would have been had you know the Cold War turned hot. But nonetheless... The fact that it wasn't going to happen, I mean, most people would agree that a trade war would be bad, right? Anything with a war in it is probably bad. And if now there's going to be trade peace, well, there's a peace dividend. And so we got that today. Whether or not we're going to get a follow through tomorrow remains to be seen. But people were happy about the news. But to me, it kind of validates what I was thinking all the time, which was that nothing would actually get done. I mean, Trump felt like he had to do something on trade, uh, on the trade deficits, which were running at record highs. You know, he campaigned about how we were losing on trade. And now if we elected him, we would start winning on trade. And since we're losing even bigger, right, the way it's being measured, he needed to do something. So he called out China. Right? He, 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 you know, pounded his chest and he said, I'm going to force the Chinese to do this and that. I'm going to negotiate. And now I guess he's going to claim another victory, right? Just like, you know, he's claiming victory over the fake unemployment numbers that are now real or the stock market bubble that is now legitimate. I guess Trump could say that we've won the trade war that we never fought and that we're winning again. Now, I guess what the Chinese have agreed to do in theory is to reduce their surplus. But how are they going to do that? You know, what is the metric uh, to determine whether or not it's being reduced. Now, the Chinese can't force uh, consumers in China to buy more American products. How are they going to do that? I mean, we're, they're just going to buy more American stuff? I mean, it's easier for America uh, to tell Americans to stop buying Chinese stuff than to try to get the Chinese government to force the Chinese to buy American stuff. After all, Americans don't even buy a lot of American stuff. So why should we expect the Chinese to do it? And they're not going to do it. I mean, on the margin, maybe there could be some extra stuff. Maybe the Chinese government can place some bigger orders or, you know, maybe they can do something to increase uh, the competitiveness, maybe reduce the cost of some U.S. products and so on the margin. 
We may see some bigger uh, exports to China. But the problem might be that we'll just sell stuff to China that we might otherwise have sold to another foreign country, and the Chinese buy it instead. And so maybe that reduces China's trade surplus, but it simply increases the trade surplus of another trading partner. The same thing might happen if the Chinese start buying more American products. They may simply be buying products that we used to sell to another country, and now the Chinese buy them instead. Maybe we get a little bit of a better price uh, by selling them to the Chinese because they obviously have to outbid the other guy. But at the end of the day, it may not do anything to reduce the nation's overall trade deficit. It simply changes the composition of the deficits, you know, which country has a bigger deficit, uh, a surplus rather with us, and which country has, you know, a smaller surplus. But none of it is going to change the underlying trend, which is for much larger trade deficits. Because as much as Trump wants to talk big about getting tough and about shrinking the trade deficits, he doesn't want to actually implement the type of policies that would bring about a reduction in trade deficits. Because none of it is good politics. And all of it would bring about a short-term reduction in the American standard of living, which is already in decline. So, you know, no president, especially Trump, wants to tell the American public that is already suffering a declining standard of living that they ha it has to decline even more, right? I mean, as much as Donald Trump campaigned that he was not a politician, that he was going in there to clean up the mess that politicians made, Every decision that he makes seems to be a political decision. He is trying to get the biggest short-term bang for the buck, right? He's not trying to uh, preside over a turnaround, right? He's not trying to enact the reforms that may have temporary pain but will result in long-term gain. He just wants to do whatever he can to generate some kind of a short-term uh, positive, or even if it's not a real positive, the appearance of it being a positive, so he can claim credit for it and campaign on it for re-election, or to try to get more Republicans to hold on to their seats in the midterm elections based on all the victories that he can claim he has. And now this Chinese one, he, oh, I talked tough and I got the Chinese to back down, and you see, we, we threatened war, but it was great negotiations, and now the Chinese are going to do things to reduce the trade surplus, when in the meantime, the Chinese surplus is likely to keep growing, and America's deficit is likely to keep rising, especially if you look at what's happening uh, to the price of oil, which is something that we still are a net importer of. Oil prices continue to rise. Nobody seems to care about it. We're now above 7250. Uh, this is a new high for the move. As I am recording this podcast, uh, the last is 7258. So we're, this is the highest we've been in what four years. You got to go back uh, to uh, summer of 2014 uh, to get oil prices uh, this high. But to me, again, the, the coast is clear for a rise up to about 80 bucks. We can easily be there uh, before the end of the year by the summer. But more importantly, if we get above 80 bucks, I mean, you look at a trend line on the monthly oil chart and you connect the peak from July of 2008, which is $140 a barrel plus before the financial crisis caused prices to plunge down below 40, right? You take that high and you connect the highs from uh, 2011, uh, 2013, and 2014, and you extend that line to today, it's about 80 bucks. 
And we get above that, and I think it's a major breakout in the price of oil. And the next stop is not just 100, although it, there may be some short-term resistance up there. But the next major resistance is going to be back at the old highs of $140 a barrel. But, of course, America has a lot more debt today than it had the last time uh, oil was $140 a barrel. I think uh, oil prices are going to be a much bigger problem for the economy, even though you know we're not importing quite as much of it on balance as we did back then. I think the American family is in worse financial shape. And remember, back in 2008, a lot of Americans still own homes and still had home equity. <clears throat> and yes, we still have a lot of Americans that own homes, but not nearly as many. Right? Home ownership was near a record high back then, and now it's near a 60-year low. And so a lot of people that used to have home equity, which was a cushion, right? You can go borrow against your home equity so you can afford to buy expensive gasoline. A lot of those former homeowners are now renters, and that home equity is gone. And by the way, their rent is also going up. It's not just the price of gas uh, that's going up, but prices in general are going up. And it's food prices that are going up, insurance prices that are going up. Uh, wages may be going up slightly, but not nearly as much. And not everybody is getting uh, a raise. In fact, a lot of people, even though maybe they're making more money per hour, they're working fewer hours or they've hobbled together two or three jobs. And maybe they spend a lot of time driving from one job to another. And obviously, as the cost of energy goes up, uh, you have to spend more of your money commuting between low paying jobs. And, you know, thanks to the new um, tax law, if you if you're just an employee, if you have two or three jobs, you can't deduct uh, uh, these expenses. You know, they're not if your employer doesn't reimburse or traveling. In fact, I don't even think you know to and from work is even deductible anyway. Uh, although if you have three jobs, I mean, I don't know what the deductibility is going from one job to another. You're not going from your house and back. You're going from job to job. But a lot of these write-offs are no longer going to be there for a lot of people who used to be able to deduct these expenses. But the bottom line is that wages, real wages, are not rising, but the cost of living is, and these higher oil prices are going to uh, exert an upward pressure on the overall trade deficit because the oil we import is now going to cost more money. Sure, we get more money for the oil we export, but there's still a positive difference there. We're still importing more than we're exporting, and so that is going to widen an already increasing trade deficit. But you know, the scariest part about the trade deficit going up is the fact that it needs to be financed. That means that foreigners, uh, since they're not buying American products, with those dollars, right, they're going to buy financial instruments, they're going to buy bonds, and we're going to have to pay higher interest rates to finance those deficits, right? Interest rates are rising. We didn't hit new highs today. We did have a bit of a, of a rally in the bond market at the end of last week. But if you look at the yield on the 10-year right now, we're 3.065. I mean, the trend is stronger. We have broken out to me, I think we're going to make a move up to three and a quarter, three and a half. Ultimately, we can go to 4% uh, before the end of the year. I don't think that's much of a stretch uh, for rates to go to 4%. That's assuming the Fed hasn't reversed course, right? If the Fed continues uh, to deliver the rate hikes, I think the markets are expecting three more rate hikes this year. Let's assume the Fed delivers on those three rate hikes. Um, and let's assume that the Fed also... Uh, shrinks its balance sheet, that it follows through with what it's 
you know, telling the markets it's going to do, there's no reason to believe that interest rates won't be 4% on the 10-year by the end of the year. Also, there's no reason to believe that oil prices won't be maybe 80 or $100 a barrel, right? If the trends that are in place now stay in place. And what's amazing, too, about the, the strength in the oil market is that it is still occurring against the backdrop of a strengthening dollar, particularly against the emerging market currencies. And, you know, there's a lot of oil demand coming out of the emerging markets. And if you're getting this type of dollar strength, one of the normal benefits for Americans is that oil prices come down, right? Because the dollar buys more oil, but that's not happening. But what that means is that oil prices are rising really fast for other people who don't have dollars, who are paying for oil and currencies that have been falling in value. Now, the dollar did surrender uh, its early morning gains today, just like gold was able to recover early morning losses. I think it was down 8 to 10 bucks at one point early this morning, and we ended up positive by a dollar or two uh, in gold. Gold stocks you know, never really sold off. They were down a little bit on the open, but gold stocks had a good day. You know, Gold stocks, the GDX was up about the same percentage as the NASDAQ. Uh, so gold stocks doing well. Uh, GDXJ even better. So there's been a lot of buying. These gold stocks have been pretty well bid on these gold sell-offs. And the gold sell-offs now, you know, we're below 1300 again. We're now at uh, 1292. Uh, but we got down around 1280. And really, there was a lot of buying down there. I don't think we hit it exactly. We came close to uh, 1280. Uh, silver again uh, also rallied up about seven cents after having been down. I think we rallied about 20 cents off the lows. It was never down that much. In fact, the silver stocks actually had an even stronger day today uh, than the gold stocks. So I've been pointing this out, just like the gold stocks didn't confirm the breakout in the price of gold above 1350, they're not confirming a breakdown below 1300. And I think we're getting ready uh, for a, a bigger rally in, in gold. But the fact, again, that the dollar continues to have trouble with these rallies. Right. I still believe this is a sucker rally, this is a short-covering rally, and we're seeing more evidence that we're running out of buyers here. The rallies are getting sold, and there's no follow-through, uh, at least you know the major currencies that are in the dollar index. Now, I know there's all this talk about, well, you know, if the Fed's going to raise interest rates three times this year, well, the dollar's going to keep rising. Based on what? I mean, the Fed raised interest rates all of last year, and the dollar fell for all of 2017, the dollar was going down. So just because people are now confident that we're going to have three rate hikes rather than two rate hikes doesn't mean that the dollar is going to rise throughout the entire cycle. Just, you know, it didn't do it last year. So why should it do it this year? And it won't. Plus, you know, go back to the last time the Fed was raising rates, the last cycle, which was what, 2004-ish to 2008, right? That's when the Fed started lifting rates up from 1% where it kept them for about a year. And it started with its measured quarter point rate hike uh, every meeting. That was four rate hikes a year. The Fed was doing four hikes every year. Or not actually, more, more than four. They did, they did it at every meeting. They didn't do it once, you know, so they, they, I forget how many meetings they have per year. Maybe it's six, whatever it is. But they were raising rates by a quarter point every time they met. So even though they were more aggressive with their rate hikes, the last time they were hiking than, than this time, right, the, uh, the, the dollar fell the entire time and gold rose throughout the entire cycle. So anybody who says that if the Fed raises rates, 
the dollar has to rise and gold has to fall. That's wrong. That's not what history shows. And again, what I think is the dollar rallies on the anticipation of higher interest rates. And by the time rates actually rise, that's when the dollar starts to fall because then the market starts to price in the inevitable cuts because all rate hikes sow the seeds of the next rate cuts, right? Especially now when you have an economy that is so debt dependent, we have so much debt, right? Eventually higher interest rates are going to be too much for the over leveraged economy to bear. And we go back to recession. And then what is the solution as far as the Fed's concerned is cut rates. But it's not just rising interest rates that are going to be a heavy burden on the economy. It's rising oil prices, right? It's just a rising cost of living in general. I mean, everybody is focusing on the benefits of the tax cuts, right? And not looking at the negatives of the larger deficits that were a direct consequence of the tax cuts. Plus, the deficits were going up anyway. It's not like without the tax cuts, we wouldn't have had deficits. They still would have been there. They're just not as large. But the bigger factor that people aren't even focusing on is what is going to happen to the budget during the next recession. Now, the way the CBOE solves that problem is they just say, well, we're not going to have another recession. Well, at least not for the next 10 years, right? Because they give you a 10-year projection on what they think uh, the budget's going to be. And during those next 10 years, there is no recession. Now, that doesn't mean they think there'll be a recession in the 11th year. They have no idea when there's going to be a recession. They just are confident that whenever it happens, it's not going to come within the next 10 years. Now, why do they have to assume that? Because if they were honest and, and threw at least one recession in there somewhere, then the deficits would blow through the roof even bigger than they're blowing through the roof now, right? Because what's going to happen during the next recession? Well, we know because the same thing happens in all recessions. Government tax revenues go down and government expenditures go up, right? I mean, that makes perfect sense. People lose their jobs, so they stop paying income taxes and they start qualifying for extended unemployment benefits, right? More people go on food stamps, more people go on disability, right? Lots of things. Now, all of a sudden, the markets tank. So people don't have capital gains to realize anymore. Maybe they have losses and now they're taking those losses and they're writing them off against their smaller paychecks. So this is what happens to the budget in every recession. But I think in this recession, it's going to be even worse than typical for two reasons. One, let's look at the revenue side of the equation. I think that a lot of taxpayers are only now beginning to discover how they can rearrange their uh, income and rearrange their employment status to move themselves into lower tax brackets than the government currently assumes they'll be in, right? Because they're just assuming that people don't change their behavior. So they're looking at, okay, the people who are independent contractors, they're going to stay independent contractors. The people who are employees, well, they're going to stay employees. No, they're not. There are a lot of people who are employees who will change their status, right? And a lot of people are going to alter uh, things in order to qualify for a lower tax bracket. That's just how people work. Everybody tries to minimize their taxes. Just like you try to maximize your earnings, you try to minimize your expenses. And one of those, the big expense is income taxes. So people will try to arrange their affairs in such a way as to have the lowest possible tax. And I think that's going to be happening in a big way going into the next recession. So I think that the amount of revenue loss is going to be much higher than what is normally associated uh, with a recession. 
Plus, of course, I mean, this one could be a particularly deep recession with a tremendous number of people losing their jobs. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons, but I think that the revenue loss in this downturn will be abnormally high. On the same token, the increase in expenditures will also be high, not simply because the uh, you know recession is, is causing more people to qualify for government benefits. But if you look at where we are right now on the demographic curve, right, the number of people that are now qualifying, the baby boomers who are moving out of their working years into their retirement years, that is really you know accelerating. So you're going to have a lot of people uh, that are going to be qualifying for the entitlements in an accelerating trajectory. But the most important thing is going to be the net interest cost that is going to be exploding on the national debt like we've never seen before. Because remember, we have all these bonds, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of bonds that are out there that have very, very low interest payments associated with them, where the government sold one-year, two-year, three-year, five-year bonds, right? During this period of time, this eight-year period of time, where interest rates were basically zero, and the government was borrowing at a quarter of a percent, a half a percent, right? Now all this stuff is going to mature, and they're going to have to roll over the same debt at two and a half percent, two and three quarters, three percent. That is a big, big number uh, when you multiply it by the trillions and trillions of debt uh, that have to be refinanced. So the the combination of recession and rising interest rates will cause federal expenditures to explode in a way that we've never seen before in any prior recession. So you have a plunge in revenues, an explosion in expenditures. What happens to the deficit that are already over a trillion dollars a year? They go through the roof. And then add on top of that quantitative tightening, right, which obviously is going to stop if it ever really gets started. But assuming the Fed is doing the quantitative tightening and you got to throw all that into the mix, because now in addition to uh, the government, the Treasury selling bonds to fund the deficit and to make up for lost tax revenues and to cover the increasing outlays and higher interest costs, they also have to sell enough bonds to repay the Federal Reserve as it shrinks its balance sheet, which we're talking about another half a trillion or so per year. So this is a perfect storm that you know nobody uh, wants to acknowledge and that nobody can see. And you know the, the, the amazing thing is that I you know this is, is something that I talk about a lot with potential investors or clients is they say, Peter, you know, you've been saying this for a long time. You know, when is this when is this going to happen? And I know I've been saying it for a long time because the problem has been building for a long time. And anybody who understands this can see the problem. The problem is that most people can't see it. That's why it's never a problem, because they never see it. I mean, there's no way to just notice the problem at the last minute. I mean, if you didn't see that we were heading for a debt crisis five years ago, 10 years ago, then I guess you don't see it now, right? Because it was obvious then. So if you thought it was no problem, in fact, even politically, you can, there was at least political lip service being paid to the debt, right? Early on, uh, when Obama was elected, that's where the whole Tea Party movement came from. It was a protest of debt, and it was all the money that was being borrowed, right? That's what gave way to the Tea Party. It was fiscal conservatives 
they are gone. There are no more fiscal conservatives. I mean, the whole Republican Party, uh, it, it, you know, they're just a bunch of Keynesian spenders. You know, the Democrats, you know, they only they kind of pretend to be fiscal conservatives sometimes when the Republicans are in power, but they're really not. They want bigger government. They don't care how they get it. Right. They don't care if they have to borrow or tax. Right. They just want bigger government. Yeah, they want to bleed the rich. Sure. That's the class envy. Right. They always want to take from the rich, but they know that they can't take everything from the rich. And, you know, so they got to leave them with something. So where are they going to get the money to buy all their votes? Well, they borrow it. So they're, they've never been fiscally conservative in the Democratic Party. But the Republican Party at least had its share of fiscal conservatives. Now, they never controlled the party. They never were able to really advance their agenda. But they were able to put some brakes on Obama. Right? They did have some success in trying to limit the big spending of Obama. In fact, they had even more success under Bill Clinton. When he was president, one of the reasons that the deficits were so small, and in fact, for a couple of years, they were able to pretend they were surpluses, was because of the Republican Congress, you know, Newt Gingrich and all those guys, they were putting the brakes. They were preventing Clinton from maybe having more government that he would have otherwise liked because he was working with Republicans in Congress. And, and so they were able to, you know, exercise some restraint when they were in a minority power. But of course, as soon as they got the White House, as soon as George Bush came in, then all that went out the window and the deficits uh, soared. But compared to where they are now, those deficits were tiny. And what the Republicans are doing under Trump is, is, much less, is much more irresponsible and reckless than what they did under, under Bush. And the consequences are going to be a far bigger disaster. And I've already said that I don't believe that the consequences are going to be postponed until after Trump is reelected. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for that to happen, but if I was going to lay odds, I would say it happens before 2020 rather than after, which is why I think that the Trump administration is going to be followed by a Democratic administration with, you know, really a socialist uh, administration just operating under the Democratic Party with a socialist Congress. And of course, by that point, um, you know, Nobody will talk about the deficits unless, of course, we've had a sovereign debt crisis before then, which we could. You know, that's where we're headed, right? Because the reason that nobody is worried about the deficits is because the national debt is 21 trillion. As far as everybody's concerned, no problem, right? There's nothing wrong with 21 trillion in debt. I mean, we were worried about the deficit when it was 5 trillion and we were worried at 10 trillion. Yet here we are, 21 trillion, and nothing bad has happened. So we we were wrong to worry, right? The fact that the deficits have gotten so much big is supposedly proof that we never had anything to worry about. But meanwhile, this whole new normal, this whole slow growth, low productivity, all this is a consequence of these big deficits, whether anybody wants to acknowledge it or not. I said back at the beginning of the podcast, if Trump really wanted to get to the root cause of America's trade deficits, it's our lack of domestic savings, which enables capital investment. Well, why don't we save any money? Because the government is borrowing it all, right? The government is is basically depleting that shallow pool, right? Now, obviously, some of the money is being borrowed from, from foreigners, but it's still money that needs to be borrowed. And of course, our monetary policy punishes people for saving, uh, so they don't save, right? We encourage people to take on debt, And so that's what we're doing. But because nobody's saving, we're not getting real capital investment. We're not increasing labor productivity. We're not increasing production. So all of this stuff is a consequence of these big debts. But because we haven't had a crisis yet, 
doesn't mean that we're not going to encounter one. Again, you know, you could jump off the top of the Empire State Building and you could say so far so good all the way until you hit the pavement. But just because you haven't hit the pavement, you know, when you're on the 50th floor on the way down or the, you know, the 30th floor, I mean, hitting it is inevitable, right? I mean, once you've jumped off the top of the building, I mean, that's it, you're done. And I think we're in that same uh, predicament. I mean, I think we've already jumped off the, the fiscal cliff or the trade deficit cliff. I mean, it's only a question of when we hit the bottom. And it's hard to tell exactly where that is because there is no way to know when a bubble is going to pop. But that's what this is. This is a huge bubble in the U.S. dollar. It's a huge bubble in the U.S. Treasury bond market. But if you look at the breakdown of the bond market thus far, and you look at it in a long-term scheme of things, you look at the beginning of the bull market in 1980, 1981, and you say, hey, that bull market ended this year, right? That is a major, major thing. And the, the reversal can be very swift. And if you think that dollar uh, correction ended in January of 2017, and that we're now in a bear market in the dollar, we're now in a bear market in bonds, then the crisis may not be that far off. And it may not be here in a few days or a few weeks, but it could be here in a few months, and it certainly could be here in a few years. And by a few, we could be meaning a couple, right? Because the numbers are now so big, uh, the dynamic that has already been set in place is so big, and you have this maximum complacency. Nobody cares. Nobody's worried. Oh, interest rates have gone up. Oh, yeah, but they're not going to go up much more. How do you know? Just look at a chart. Look at how high they can go. Look at how high they've been in the past when we were in far better fiscal shape than we are now. And think about the supply and demand dynamics of where interest rates should be. Look at how high oil prices have been in the past. Clearly, they can go up there again. So there's a lot of reasons to believe that the situation is going to deteriorate rapidly, yet no one is even caring. And in fact, just where rates are now is enough to ultimately prick the bubble as more and more low-yielding debt matures, but rates aren't going to stay where they are. They're going to go a lot higher. It's just that you don't see anybody being nervous about it. But again, very few people were nervous about the financial crisis in 2007, even in 2008. Very few people were nervous about the mortgage market, even after the subprime market imploded, even after all the lenders were going bankrupt, even after uh, you know Bear Stearns filed for bankruptcy. I mean, it took a lot of things to happen right, before everything started to implode and before anybody was even worried about it. I mean, so many bad things that should have caused alarm, people were laughing. I remember there was one uh, uh, cuddle I did uh, where I was on with a panel and Don Luskin was one of the guys and he was yelling at me because he goes, Peter, Peter, you've been coming on here warning about all this stuff. You know, you said this was going to happen. Well, all those bad things have happened, and it's no big deal, right? The subprime market has exploded, and it's nothing. It, it hasn't hurt the economy, and it never will. So when are you going to stop, you know, whining and complaining? When are you going to stop all this bearish talk? All these bad things have happened. It's all out in the open now, and it means nothing. The market is shrugging it off, and that's proof that there's nothing to worry about. The fact that the market was shrugging, shrugging it off didn't prove that there was nothing to worry about. It simply proved that the people who were buying stocks still weren't smart enough to worry about it. That even though all these problems were now out in the open, they were no longer buried beneath the surface, right, where they were still kind of buried in plain sight. They were still easy to see, but at least they were masked a little bit. But now they come out in the open and the markets still don't get it because they don't think there's a problem. 
And so when they see all the evidence that that problem is about to explode, they don't recognize it for what it is. But guys like me who had been looking for those signs for years, when they finally see them, they can say, aha, yeah, this is, this is it, right? This is the warning sign that I've been waiting for. And again, I've got those same feelings now that uh, the stuff that I've been waiting for is now happening. So I think we're playing out the final inning again, whether it's weeks, months, years, there's no way to know for sure, but I think we're at the end game. Oh, speaking of the end game, I know people have been uh, talking about the fact that I haven't said anything about uh, Bitcoin in a while, and I really haven't talked about it because it really hasn't done anything. I mean, it's been range-bound, and it's still range-bound. I think the range that we're in on Bitcoin, on the high side, it's about 10,000. You know, I think we got up there uh, once, and then we sold back off. I think the support's around 8,000. Uh, maybe a little below 79 and change, but I think, you know, that's kind of an established range right now. As I'm speaking, uh, we're trading around 8,400, 8,500 as I'm recording this. So obviously we're closer to the low end of that range than to the high end of the range. Uh, my feeling is if I was going to guess is that it's going to break down rather than break out. I mean, I think, I think Bitcoin is in a bear market now. I think the bull market ended at 20,000. And I think uh, we're in a bear market. And I think right now we're just consolidating. There are people that are betting the market's going to go up. And I think smarter people are betting that the market's going to go down. I think at some point it's going to go down. It's going to break down decisively below 8,000. And we'll see where the market goes. Meantime, you know, I've been traveling quite a bit. You can see the talk that I gave uh, in Canada, a Cambridge house at the resource conference. That's up on my YouTube channel. So you can check that out. But that's why I haven't been making as many recordings as I normally would make. You know, I was up, I think it was either in, at the Vegas Money Show or Vancouver. I ran into a couple and a, a, a young lady told me that her boyfriend uh, is a huge fan and that he listens to my podcasts every day. And I said, well, you're obviously exaggerating because I don't do a podcast every day. I mean, maybe I do a couple a week or sometimes just one a week. And what she said to me is, yeah, I know that, but when you don't do one, on a day that you don't have a new one, he just re-listens to an old one because he's got to listen to your podcast every day, whether it's an old one or a new one. And so uh, in deference to people who just have to hear a Peter Schiff podcast, I will try uh, to record more of these uh, now that I'm back from my travels. I don't plan on being anywhere until I go back out to Las Vegas again for Freedom Fest in mid-July. And I would encourage you, if you've never been to that conference, uh, it's a great event. There's a lot of liberty-minded people that come out there. I mean, it's not the best time of year to go to Vegas, but I think the rooms are cheaper in July, which is maybe why they do it. Uh, and of course, you know, if you spend most of your time indoors at the conference and at night, you know, you go to clubs or, you know, uh, bars and stuff, then it doesn't really matter that it's 100 degrees in the shade because you're, you're, you're indoors. Uh, but it's still, it's a great time uh, a great conference, rather. A lot of interesting people, myself included. We'll have a booth there. Uh, generally, the guys from uh, the LA office, I believe, uh, come to uh, Freedom Fest and they work the booth. So it's a good time. My family will be there. Uh, pretty much always bring my wife and kids uh, to that event. So never had a chance to meet them. There's your opportunity. Sometimes they're they're around the booth. Uh, and even hope to see uh, hope to see you guys there or as many of you there as possible. But between now and then. I will try to be recording more uh, podcasts than I have been the last couple of weeks.